It's changing fast. You really have to stay on top of it. I'm involved with the people around the country that are experts in this area. So find groups of people who are also interested and share information because it takes a lot of people working together to really understand and to look at it from different angles, to really assess the different legal issues. We work with some of the groups that are the artists and the people that are trying to be protected, but also the technology platforms that are trying to provide these tools. And sometimes they have different views and looking at it from different angles and figuring out where the happy mediums are. It's good to have different perspectives. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead, a podcast that challenges the notion that the law lags behind. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Each week, I invite a lawyer who's making powerful changes through extraordinary leadership. In each episode, we'll travel through another lawyer's life, identify what they do best, and then devise how to apply these concepts to your own world. So let's get to it. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Our guest today is actually my first repeat guest from last year. He is a partner in Shepard Mullins Intellectual Property Practice Group in Washington, D.C., He is also co-leader of the firm's blockchain and fintech team and leader of the open source team. For over 35 years, he has been a thought leader on legal issues with emerging technologies and business models, most recently in blockchain, AI, open source, and interactive entertainment. If you want to hear his full lawyer origin story, you can go back and listen to his fantastic interview entitled Leading by Seeing Around Corners back in May 2022. Let's welcome back our next lawyer who leads, Jim Gatto. Jim, welcome to the show. Great to be back again. Thank you. I want to first and foremost discuss how AI is being handled, not by just the federal governments and agencies, but also what you're seeing out there in the legal industry at large. But let's start at the federal level first. I know that in October of 2022, the White House published a blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights. Can you speak to some of the principles in that blueprint? Sure. Yeah. So there's a lot of evolution happening and AI is moving, particularly generative AI is moving at a very rapid pace. And so with any new technology, there's a lot of good things, but there's also potential harm. And so there's a number of different concerns that are raised. One of the big issues, and this is not any particular order, one of the big issues is bias. AI models are trained on data. And and there's algorithms and the bias can come in either in using data that is subject to bias in and of itself and or through intentional programming of how data is processed. And either of those is really undesirable. We've seen all of the kerfuffle with social media and monitoring and disinformation and misinformation and all of that. Once the models are trained and the algorithms are generated, it takes the human element out of it going forward. But if it's built with bias, it's going to continue to to be biased and potentially get even more biased as the feedback loops occur. So that's one big area. And and bias can come in with AI in a number of areas. One is, and states are now starting to pass laws as well in, in hiring. So AI that's used to screen resumes, in some cases, it, it can just weed people out with a bias-based approach. That's obviously not good. We're seeing bias in lending. So with fair lending, if you exclude certain areas, it might be of a certain demographic or economic income level. Obviously, those are bad. So there's many different areas where there's bias. There's some of the other kind of high-level issues that the regulators are concerned with in ensuring that as different agencies regulate, there's transparency. One of the problems with AI models is that 
once a model is trained on the data, theoretically, the data is not there. There's information about the data. And so it's hard to go back and figure out how did the model get to where it is. Uh, so that's another issue. Truthfulness, there, there's a couple of issues around truthfulness of, around both how you've trained the model, but also the fact that you're using AI. So there's a number of chatbots, for example, that people have no idea that they're talking. They think they're talking to a human and they're not. Some of these chatbots have gotten really good. So there's a number of issues like that that are like real big picture type issues that can play out in many different industries, many different applications. There's other things like use it for good, not for harm, make sure that we're dealing with safety and, and some of the other things that go along. There's privacy issues and, and just other things that just relate to humanity and treating people like people is a, another big part of that. One of the things that you talk about is transparency. And I know that Google's Bard is trying to use more citations when they're trying to bring in information that you're asking for. But in general, I found it's so important to verify all of the information that you're using, whether it's through ChatGPT or Google Bard or other types of AI tools. Are you seeing that be more of a priority? Yes. I think there's a couple of parts to that answer. So one is, I think the potential issues with AI are well known to the companies that are building the tools. And to their credit, they're adding features to their tools to minimize some of these issues. So just to go through some of those quickly, you mentioned the citation. So like knowing where data came from is kind of important. There, there was just from a story perspective, there was a lawyer recently who got tagged for writing a brief citing cases that didn't exist. So the AI made it up. One of the things you need to do is AI is an assistive tool. You can use it to assist you. You cannot totally rely on it. So you typically still need to verify. And there's a lot of different types of verification. One is for accuracy. Another area is, as you know, I do a lot of work with open source and some of these AI code generators are trained on open source repositories from GitHub or, or other places. And one of the issues that arises there is that while open source is generally free to use and there's no infringement issue with using AI to, to be trained on open source code, most of the open source licenses have some obligations that come along with them, whether it's maintaining copyright, attribution, other types of things like that. And if you're training an AI model on code and you don't know as a user what open source has been used, it can present issues with respect to compliance. And so some of the platforms are using a tool called referencing that if a certain amount of code is suggested to the developer, it will actually do a quick search to see if it matches any known open source code. So you can actually then determine, are there any compliance obligations? So that, that's another type of, of checking. But yeah, the, these tools are adding some of those features, but on the counter side, there's there's another issue that, that kind of weighs against it to a certain extent. And that is one of the big issues around training AI on content that's copyright protected uh, is whether the training in the first place constitutes infringement. And one of the issues that arises, is it a fair use? Are you just using the data? Just like we read books and we learn from it, that's not infringement. We're not copying the books, but still we, we learn. If an AI tool just extracts data about images and stores an index of that information, that's one thing. But if you also store the images, right, then that may factor into the copyright infringement analysis. So there's a balance there between keeping the images and referencing them, which might play into the copyright issue, versus having it there so you know where the data came from. And so trying to figure out the balance between those two is tricky. 
Oh, wow. That's fascinating. I hadn't even thought about that before. Yeah, it's very fact specific. So there's different sources of data. And I use the word data in the, in this you know arena. It could be textual data, facts. It could be, but it also be content, whether it's music, art, source code, et cetera. So we'll use that term broadly here. But so one of the issues is where are you obtaining the data from? What's the source, right? Are you scraping the web? Is it a database you already have your own private database, right? Where your Google or big company already has huge quantities of data or social media company. Are you getting it from a third party under license? Are you getting it from open source repositories where there is a permissive license to use it subject to compliance as we talked about? So that's one question is where is the data coming from? The second is what's the nature of the data? Is it copyright protected or not? And are there contractual obligations like the open source, for example? So all of that goes into the data that's being used to train, and you can analyze whether the way you're doing it is permissible or not. And the big question is for like the image generators, there's a couple of lawsuits pending right now, one by Getty and one by some artists. Getty said they used 12 million Getty images to train an AI model to output other images. And one of the questions or one of the defenses that the, the, the platforms will raise is that it's fair use. And they cite the Google Books case, but at a high level, there's a lot that goes into the analysis and it's very fact specific. There can be issues of potential infringement. And if it's copyright infringement, then fair use may be a defense if, if it applies. So is the fair use defense because you're training an AI for educational purposes? So educational purposes is one of the elements where fair use can apply. There's really no bright line rules. In fact, there was just a recent Supreme Court case, the Andy Warhol case was decided by the Supreme Court. And there's four factors, but one of the factors and the one that was prominent in the in the Warhol case was whether the work is transformative or not. And whether it's transformative is fact specific. And in that case, Warhol had taken an image of every famous photograph of Prince, the singer, and edited it in his style, said he was creating a different commentary about it. But it was still an image, and both the original photographer and Warhol were licensing images to magazines. So it was the same market. So in that case, they found that it, there was no fair use because it was commercial and it really wasn't a different use than the original. When you look at what's happening with AI, there's kind of two questions here. One is, if you look at the training alone, you could argue that if what you're really doing is creating an index or a database of like metadata, data about images, arguably that it would be fair use. But in the totality, if you look at the reason they're right, if it's an AI image generator, if you're training it so that you can output other images, you're providing an output that is essentially the same as what the input is or the purpose, right? Artists license their works and so on. And so one of the most important cases in that area is the Google Books case. They had a lawsuit that lasted about 10 years or somewhere close to that. And in that case, what they were doing is they were scanning the world's books. They're working with libraries and they were scanning books, many of which were copyright. And they were creating an index, a searchable index of books. But that's what the product was. If you did a search, once they had the index, what you got was a snippet of the books that had the, whatever the search terms were in a little bit of context. They weren't reproducing books. So in that case, the court found it was transformative because it wasn't competitive with books. The court found it actually helped the market because you could find obscure books you might not be able to find otherwise. 
there was another case just recently, it was the eBooks case where they were scanning books too. They're working with libraries. So same initial facts as Google, but they were creating eBooks from physical books. And the point of doing it in part was to enable people who couldn't make it to the library because of physical handicaps or they were geographically remote or whatever to be able to get books. And they were, they were putting some safeguards in, like if you lent out the physical book, you couldn't lend the eBook, et cetera. And despite that, despite there was no multiple copies being made or being used at any given time, the court found that that wasn't transformative because even though you were scanning the books, like in Google, what the ultimate purpose was to do something that was competitive with physical books. So those are just some cases that show like you can have similar facts, you can get different results. It's very fact specific. I feel like all the themes of all the three cases that you just shared was this idea of competitiveness. If you were competing in the market, and that's kind of the end result. And that's a huge factor that these courts are considering. That's that's definitely one of the factors. So the more you're using the work for the same purpose that you're copying it from, that's going to hurt you. But as you mentioned, if it's for news reporting, education, or some other purposes, you still have to look at the other factor. You look at like how much of the work you're using, the nature of the work. Is it more factual type work, which is subject to less copyright protection, or is it more creative? So there's a number of different factors. But yeah, in those cases, a lot of it turned on, was it transformative, the use and the market for the product from which the copying occurred? Yeah. On that note, I know that you mentioned before the recording that you actually spoke at the listening session in April and May. Were these some of the issues that you were talking about? Were there other issues that also came up? Both the patent office and the copyright office held separate listening sessions. On the So on the patent office, I'll come back to that in a second because that was different. So on the copyright office, it was really more, not so much, they weren't focusing on the infringement side. They were really focused more on, if you look at the output of an AI tool, like with uh, these image generators, for example, or other types of content, if the creative part of the work is generated by AI as opposed to a human, can you get copyright protection for it? And under the copyright laws, you have an author of a work. And so the question more precisely is, can AI be an author? And a lot of sub-issues that go into it, but the Copyright Office has actually dealt with a couple of applications, one in particular by a guy named Stephen Thaler. I think he actually had one or two applications where he had a tool and he listed the tool as the sole author. And the copyright office rejected the work, saying it has to be a human to be an author. What's interesting there, and also on the patent side a little bit when we get to patent and inventorship, is that it's pretty clear to me the way the copyright office and the patent office are addressing this right now. If a work is solely AI generated, it's not going to be copyright protectable. And if an invention is solely AI generated, it's not going to be patentable. The more interesting question, and a lot of what I focused on in my comments to both of the offices, was what happens when you have co-inventorship? So assuming you use AI and you provide some creative input, but the AI adds to it, can you get protection for that work under copyright? And similarly on the patent side, if you use AI and they're a co-inventor with you, can you get protection? And it's a really important question because if the answer is no, it's going to deter people from using AI to create and invent. I think the reason, this is just my personal view, the reason the Copyright Office and Patent Office are holding these hearings is they recognize that's a challenge and they want to find a solution. And I personally think on the patent side, there actually is a solution if they want under existing law 
currently, if there's joint inventors, typically both inventors have to sign a declaration and one of the, that, that they're an inventor. One of the problems with AI is it's not a legal entity, and so it can't execute documents, it can't own stuff, it can't sign declarations, etc. But there's a provision under the existing patent law that if one of a if one or more co-inventors cannot be found or is not able to sign, one of the other co-inventors can proceed without them. And one of the categories that falls into this is if one of the co-inventors is legally incapacitated. So my view is that AI is legally incapacitated because it's incapable of executing legal documents. And so there is a provision that would at least provide a path forward. There may be a couple other technical obstacles to overcome, but I think if the patent office really wants to find a path forward, I think that might be part of the solution based on what's already in the law. So I think we'll see what happens. I think it's a really important question because obviously people are using, particularly in the drug context, one of the representatives from one of the drug companies saying how much they're using AI to go back on all these molecules that they had discarded as not being effective. And AI is finding, AI is really good at pattern recognition. It's finding molecules or other potential drug candidates that have benefit and that we either missed by humans or whatever. And so that's part of the inventive process with drugs is identifying usefulness. Now there's still further testing, et cetera, but in some cases identification that a particular molecule binds to a protein or whatever, sometimes that is the solution. And then the testing is just to prove that it actually works or it's, it's it has efficacy or and or safety in humans. So typically that part is not the inventive part, right? So th- there's a lot of, there's a lot at stake with this. So I, hopefully they'll find a path forward for being able to use AI as part of the process. Question, why even list AI as a co-inventor or co-author? Yeah, because under current law, if you are not the sole inventor, you let's say on a patent, if you're not the sole inventor, you have to state that. Put it conversely, if you say you're the sole inventor, you have to sign a declaration under penalty of perjury that you are. And if that's not true, you are not only is your patent invalid, you're subjecting yourself to potential problems. And, and I get that. But like, for example, if I look at AI as just a tool, right, mm-hmm. even if it does help me with the creative process. So for lack of a better Example, like I liken it to a camera, right? The camera has all these different ways in which to enhance the creative process, whether that's color, focus, whatever the case may be. I wouldn't list my camera as a co-author. Why can't AI just be listed as like a tool or process in which it helped assist the author versus just having to list it as an author? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that that is also one of the other questions that the offices were considering to some extent. But I think the answer is that on the copyright side, it, it really, what it comes down to, at least currently, is what's the level of human control over the expressive content? Because you can't copyright ideas, you can only copyright expression. So if I put a prompt into an AI tool and say, create this image of X, Y, and Z, that's just an idea. But the image that comes out is what's protectable. Hmm. Okay? So in order to claim something as my work, I have to have dictated the expressive content. So to to flip it around, if I'm using like Adobe Photoshop or something, and I want to select a portion of an image, and I outline it, and I pick a color, and then it just automates the fill of that color, I've dictated that that color is going to be there, right? So in that case, clearly, even though I'm using a tool, 
I'm still specifying the expressive content. Now, you raise an interesting question, and I think that there's, without offending the photographers out there who get copyright protection in their images, and many many of the professional photographers, they're doing all the settings themselves, they're editing the images themselves, and so they're controlling the whole process. And in those cases, they're they're controlling the expressive content. But I can tell you, if I take an image, if I take a, a picture rather with a camera and the camera's on autofocus and I'm just holding the thing over my head, not pointing at anything, I'm still getting the copyright on that. And should that be the case or not? And I think that just because you're using technology doesn't mean it can't be protectable, but it doesn't necessarily mean it, it can be either, right? Or that you're the sole author. So I think that there further consideration needs to be given to your question of like, when do you have to attribute at least part of the expressive content to AI as opposed to the user. Yeah. And especially like in light of these prompt engineers, this idea that you can be a prompt artist, right? Yes. That there's nuance and really you could be an expert in how to create and craft a prompt. And the better and more specific you can create in those prompts, the more the lines are blurred between idea and expression. And so I just wonder as people become more nuanced in their prompt engineering, like how does that play into all of it? Yeah, no, and it's very fact-specific, but it's very relevant. And there was another copyright registration that the Copyright Office dealt with. There is a artist, Christina Kashtanova, who did a AI-assisted comic book and got a registration for it. And when the registration was filed, Christina put her name and Midjourney under it because she used Midjourney to generate some of the images. The copyrights didn't understand what that meant. They issued the registration. She posted on social media that she got this copyright. Copyright office found out about it, went back and sent her a letter saying, hey, you found out this was AI generated. You didn't tell us. Give us this additional information. We're going to reevaluate the registration. And with an attorney, she responded and the copyright office maintained the registration for the text because she made a clear assertion that she wrote the text and for the layout of the text and the images. She did all the layout herself. But despite the fact that she iterated the images, the copyright office didn't feel that there was a sufficient level of creative input on the part of the human there. And they, they canceled the registration with respect to the images. I've actually spoken with Christina and she did a lot of back and forth. It wasn't just like one prompt. I think she's something like it was like a hundred, at least a hundred iterations or something, but she used Midjourney and the way Midjourney works is you put a prompt in and then basically four images come out and you pick one and you can further iterate. But the copyright office felt like that one of the terms they used was there was not sufficient predictability in the expressive content. And when they issued guidance after that, they didn't even use the word predictability. So it's not clear right now. You use, I think, that the standard test for authorship. If the AI was a human, would the AI be an author or a joint author? I think at a high level, that's probably the way to look at it right now until we get further guidance from the Copyright Office. That's wild. Wow. Yeah. Just wrapping up on the government side of things, is there anything else that through these sessions or otherwise that you're seeing from a regulatory perspective that lawyers or our listeners should be should be thinking about? Yeah, so the FTC has been pretty active. There's been a couple of cases. I'll tell you one, one thing that people should be aware of. There was a, and this goes to the remedy. So what happens, we talked about earlier, once data is used to train a model and you don't know what's in there, right? So we flipped down on the remedy side, there was a company called EverAlbum and they had a AI tool and they used data per personal images and some other stuff. And they didn't 
even when people deleted their accounts, they were still using it. And I guess the privacy policy didn't cover that. So they had some unauthorized use. And so they ended up settling with the FTC. But the FTC was like, you have to stop using the data you don't have a right to use. And I guess they couldn't figure out like how to back the data out because it was already there. They didn't have a record. And so the ultimate penalty was what's called algorithmic disgorgement. And what that means is they had to go back and delete their algorithms and the models and go back to ground zero. I mean, some of these bigger, large language models, people are spending hundreds of millions of dollars to train. I'm not saying algorithmic disgorgement will be relevant in every case, but if it is, the penalty is pretty severe. So one of the things that people are trying to do, and again, without infringement, is keep some record of do your training in batches and do what's called versioning. So if you, you know, train a model and then you take like a snapshot of the model and the algorithms and, and all that, and you can reference like what data was used. If there's a if there's an issue, you can you can roll back to the version immediately prior to that, for example. And you'd be able to show all right, we've deleted the models and any impact of the improper data and we go back. It's easier said than done, but the concept of versioning is I think important to try to prevent from being in a situation where you have to face algorithmic disgorgement. What a fantastic way to at least try to protect yourself around losing completely everything, because that's, you're right, that would cost so much money and potentially bankrupt an entire organization if they had to delete everything as a remedy. Fantastic. So let's talk about the legal industry. What are lawyers currently thinking about? How are they helping their clients? But also at one point, I'd love to talk about lawyers within firms and using AI in the legal world. Yeah. So there's there there are and there have been a number of tools that are AI based that assist lawyers for many years. The the use of generative AI has certainly rapidly increased that. Um, our firm, we have a policy. We don't ban lawyers using AI. I've used it to write some blog posts, not to generate a whole post, but to assist, right? And you still have to fact check if there's cases, whatever, you want to make sure that the cases are real and all that. Anything from using it in creating presentations and creating blog posts or articles, et cetera. There's tools that help with research. Um, There's tools that help with writing briefs. A guy that used to work for me, he's a patent attorney, he generated an AI tool that a patent lawyer writes a set of claims and will draft a first draft of a patent application and the drawings based on that. So there's a lot of assistive tools, and we'll see more and more on the way. I was just at a tech conference last week, and Thomson Reuters was they just announced a huge partnership with Microsoft where they're integrating Thomson Reuters legal research tools into Microsoft you know, Office products so lawyers can work on the fly and generate legal briefs or contracts. It will search prior contracts and pull up clauses based on what you ask. And there's other, there are tools that do things like that, but they're putting a lot into it to make it very easy to use, very seamless and customizable, et cetera. So there's a whole range of ways in which lawyers will use AI in connection with delivering legal services. I read an article recently that talks about how AI is going to have an effect on how lawyers bill. Um, and the more efficient that they become, the less able they are to bill in the more traditional way. What are your thoughts on that? So we bill our actual time for now. And if you save time using AI, then you just bill less hours. I think over time, as reliability increases and ubiquity of AI tools increase, I think you'll see more in-house legal departments demanding firms use AI for efficiency. And I think that what I'd like to think is a happy balance is that 
for certain things, it'd be more of a fixed fee type of arrangement with clients where they understand you're using AI for certain things, but you're still having lawyers do certain things. And maybe there's a way to share the efficiencies of that. Law firms will be investing and are investing a lot of money in these tools. So, you know, there's behind your question is, well, if you use AI, you're just cutting your hours. But at the end of the day, you want to do what's efficient for clients, but you also want to get a reasonable return if you're investing in technology as well. I think it'll be interesting to see how that changes over time, but I think it's just going to require, you know, clear and frank communications between client attorneys. I know that there's a lot of concerns around AI. And before we get into the larger concerns, just staying on the legal side of things for lawyers, There is some arguments to say that, especially when it comes to younger associates, that the process of going through brief writing or the process of going through these things that could potentially be replaced by AI could make lawyers think differently or maybe are not as good lawyers. So what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that that's going to be an issue? Yes. (laughs) There's already a lot of pressure on junior lawyers right now, just where billing rates are, e-discovery. There's a lot of tools now to review documents, right? Which is what on the litigation side, a lot of first and second years did. I think this is just going to exacerbate the trend that was already in place before. I think it's going to require um, some rethinking. You mentioned earlier, like AI prompt engineers. I think one of the skills that, that junior lawyers should really embrace is learning how to use AI as a lawyer in a very effective way. While I'm a relatively senior lawyer and like technology, I can tell you many of the people in my age group don't wanna get their hands dirty with technology, but they're gonna need this. And so they're gonna need people like that that are very proficient. And so I think, you know, in addition to knowing the law, having this practical ability to be a AI legal prompt engineer, and then some, I think would be very beneficial. It's a great answer. To some other concerns before we get into our rapid fire questions, there are concerns around, and I don't know if this is something that you're working with your clients or not, but there are organizations that are creating obviously avatars. Some of these avatars are creating the sense of these deep fake news videos that are like distributing misinformation. I read a lot of AI companies that are focused on military strategy that could be potentially really scary if given into the wrong hands. Are you seeing some of this in your practice and are these concerns valid or, you know, how are you dealing with those things? Yes, I'm seeing it in my practice and, and yes, the concerns are valid. So on the deep fake side, for example, it, it's a huge issue. Even again, without generative AI, there was computer technology. People were creating a lot of fake images, whether it's for a dating site or images coming from a war zone representing something happened that didn't happen, but the image shows that and everything in between. So one of my clients, I do work with a company called TruePick, and their their whole focus is on authenticity of media. And they've developed some really amazing solutions, been named as Time Magazine, one of the top inventions, et cetera. They built a huge portfolio of patents around their technology, and they're working with some major industry players like Microsoft and Adobe and others on a standard to embed into the tech ecosystem tools to authenticate images and other media. There's a standard organization called the C2PA that they're involved with and others. So there's efforts like that to deal with those types of issues and others. But yeah, there there's a lot of potential bad use of this technology. People are trying to find technical solutions to help combat that. Yeah, I like that. I like the idea of creating companies and tools that can actually help authenticate things because that's really important. So let's get into our rapid fire questions. 
since we've already spoken very deeply in your last episode about leadership in general, we're going to focus our scope on leadership in this arena. So first and foremost, what would you say leadership in this arena means to you? I think that leadership in this arena means two things. One is really understanding the technology and its strengths and weaknesses and the issues that come from it. And then being a thought leader on the legal ramifications of that and how to address the legal issues. So how are you being a thought leader? So we're helping educate clients on these issues. There's a lot of in-house counsel right now that are somewhat scrambling to try to figure this all out and try, this is not their full-time day job. We're spending a lot of time, me and my team, keeping abreast of what's going on with the technology, what's going on with the cases that are pending, anticipating other legal issues that will arise, and then doing presentations to companies in-house to help them understand the range of issues. And then the solution is to, or part of the solution is to develop a policy, right? So some companies right now are telling employees, don't use general AI. It's a safe solution, right? If you don't do anything, it's always safe, right? But you're losing out on the benefit. So, you know, we try to help companies understand Like, you know, many companies will approve certain tools for certain uses based on the terms of service, the features, the safety features that they have, some of the referencing of where the training content came from, a whole bunch of other factors. But at least there's like a rational policy that helps at least mitigate the risk. And it's very company dependent right now. If you're generating content that you want to be copyright protectable, you're going to have stronger controls over your employee on what's being done for that. If it's just for internal referencing and not something you're going to publish or want to copyright, then you know, the risks are less. So it's trying to understand where the risks are in, in the different use cases on a per company basis. And even within some companies on a different business units have different business risks and profiles and their policies differ a bit. Some of these generative AI tools have something in their terms and conditions that says that anything you basically input in there, they now own the data and are allowed to use it for whatever purposes they want. I know a lot of times we we click whatever, I agree on terms and conditions, but this seems like now more than ever, it's very important to be reading those terms and conditions. It is, and that's part of what we help companies with because that, that's one of the differentiators for some of the different AI tools. In some cases, the you may still own the input, but they get a license to use it. But if it's confidential information or a trade secret, or if you're a lawyer and you're using it and you're putting in, let's say you're doing a patentability search, right? You're disclosing subject matter that's attorney-client privilege potentially. So, you know, helping companies understand that you cannot use it to search where the input is going to be confidential information. Now, some of the tools are developing enterprise versions and some have different methods of access, whether it's API versus browser-based And so understanding the range of differences, again, there are situations where that's less of a risk under certain of those scenarios. But understanding what the options are and understanding what the terms of service are critical. What is something that other lawyers generally seem to misunderstand about the AI landscape? Great question. There's a lot of different issues out there. And I think part of the problem is you need to try to get on top of all of them to really fully understand what's happening and understand a bit about how the technology works. Some of the lawyers that are just getting up to speed in this space just don't have a, a full understanding of the scope of issues. I've been doing AI work for over 20 years. And have, again, it's accelerated with all of what's going on now. But there's a lot of people that are just jumping in because they see huge opportunities, which is great, but there's just, it's like drinking out of a fire hose. The way the technology is changing and the different legal issues that are arising, it's just important to really dig in if you're going to be in this space. Absolutely. 
if there was one thing that you can change about how the AI landscape is being handled right now, what would it be? I think transparency on the training data would be very helpful. I think a number of the legal issues that arise, the uncertainty arises because in part due to the fact that it's not clear what was trained. And we look at some of the cases that are pending right now. There's uh, Getty and Anderson versus uh, Stability AI, for example. And you know there, there's motions to dismiss saying that, well, there was 12 million images that were used. In order to prove infringement, you have to show that an image was copied and used for training and there was an output based on that, for example. At least that's one of the theories. And so it's hard for the artist who right now are saying, hey, all our work is being used to train the AI. But if they can't point to an actual instance of infringement, they, they may or may not be able to have a valid claim right now. But there may, there may be an issue in the future. Right? So, um, you know, it creates a challenge. So I think transparency is one thing that would really help. What is a piece of practical advice you can give to our listeners? These are leaders and future leaders in law about the AI landscape. It's changing fast. You really have to stay on top of it. I said that a little bit earlier. I hate to be repetitive, but I think that's the number one advice. I'm involved with a couple of groups. The ABA has a, the IP section has a um, AI machine learning task force. And so I, I'm working with some of the people around the country that are experts in this area as well. I spend a lot of time reading, but I can't keep up myself. So find groups of people who are also interested in share information because Yes, it, uh, it takes a lot of people working together to really understand it and to look at it from different angles to really assess the different legal issues. It's interesting. We work with some of the groups that are the artists and the people that are trying to be protected, but also the technology platforms that are trying to provide these tools. And sometimes they have different views and trying to figure out, looking at it from different angles and figuring out where the happy mediums are. It's good to have different perspectives. That's excellent advice. What are some of the coolest AI tools or instances or applications that you've seen? For any anyone who golfs out there, you should check out sportsbox.ai. And you can take just from your phone, you can take a video of your golf swing. They'll turn it into a 3D avatar and they measure all the biomechanical properties of your golf swing. So it will, it will instead of just saying like you swang inside out and that's why you sliced, it will it will actually measure and show you whether you dipped your hands, dipped your shoulders, swayed your pelvis. Like it, it is the most analytical tool that I've ever seen for golf. I cite that one because that's practical. As a consumer, you can see the results, right? If you're not an artist or you're not using AI for predictive analytics, you're not a data scientist, there's many other things that are really cool in that realm. But from a just a consumer perspective, go check that one out. That's awesome. I had no idea. Even your golf swing can be improved through AI. That's so interesting. Thank you so much, Jim, for being on the show. I always love talking to you. I wish we had three more hours to have discussions around this. If anyone wanted to reach out and have more discussions, how can they connect with you? The easiest way is through LinkedIn. I post a lot on LinkedIn as well. And if you want to just follow and, and see some of the articles we're writing, so you can find me easily. Wonderful, Jim. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks so much. A pleasure as always. Thank you, leaders and future leaders, for listening today. We have a new guest every week, so don't forget to join us next week. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow at Lawyers Who Lead on social. Let's celebrate and continue to build a community of leaders in law together. Lawyers Who Lead is made possible by Lawline, the leading online platform for lawyers who want engaging, relevant CLE and professional growth content. For over 20 years, Lawline has helped hundreds of thousands of attorneys level up by providing award-winning courses in hard-to-find areas and high-demand fields. 
They have so many courses to choose from that are actually really interesting to listen to and watch. That's why Lawline's rated the highest in the industry with almost five stars and over a thousand verified reviews on Trustpilot. Lawyers who lead listeners get $100 off Lawline's unlimited annual subscription, which means you can take as many courses as you want for a really good price. Just visit lawline.com slash podcast to get the special offer. Check out Lawline for the best content for leaders and future leaders in legal.